Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. You know that I teach on a triennial cycle. I religiously teach to the third of the Parsha that we're in. And I opened to the third, the first third of the Parsha because we're in the first year of a triennial cycle. So I opened to the first third and I'm like, gosh, I feel like I teach this like more than every three years. I don't understand. And I was like, I just was so confused. So I went to the Hebcal and looked at the triennial readings and we read the entire portion of Utro every year. <laughs> so I'm like, that's why this is so familiar. Okay. So we're going to do something a little different this morning. We're not going to focus as much this year on Revelation. This year, we're going to focus on Yitro. And that is because uh, at Hartman, as many of you know, I'm learning at Hartman in Jerusalem twice a year, part of the Rabbinic Leadership Initiative. Institute, initiative, I don't know. So um, we are, so we, we had the great good fortune to study with uh, Dr. Professor Christine Hayes, uh, who is a PhD in Talmud. And we were learning with her. She's, she's one of those like scary smart people, like scary smart, um, and a great teacher. And um, her story is a very interesting story, which I'll get to later. But one of the um, classes she did with us was on Jewish identity and uh, how we create identity as a people and, and the kind of boundaries as a people, because that's part of what we're studying with Hartman. And then what are those boundaries about? And Christine, had the, Professor Hayes, had this amazing class um, that really opened up stuff for a lot of us. And I want to share some of that material with you today. And it's based on Yitro. So, um, but my colleague, my classmate, my cohort mate, Rabbi Barry Dove Katz, put it together uh, in a shiur in a different kind of format. So that's, so you're getting Dr. Hayes through the lens of Rabbi Barry Katz. Okay, where do we start? I do want to start at the beginning. 18.1, we begin Parshat Yitro. Yitro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So, so Yitro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after she had been sent home, and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, that is to say, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the other was named Eliezer, meaning the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought Moses' sons and wife to him in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and kissed him. Each asked after the other's welfare, and they went into the tent. Okay. So what do we know already? Who is Yitro? He's Moses' father-in-law. All right. So we know... So we know already, just by looking at the shot, just by looking at the simple meaning of the text, we are... Bert, really? You have to take up the whole board? Unbelievable. 
It's a good thing I come prepared. <laughs> and a real one at that, people. Okay. So, not some schlocky square nothing. Okay. So, so we already know that he's his father-in-law. So what kind of a relationship to the people Israel does Jethro have just from that? He's family. Okay? He married, he, his daughter married an Israelite. So Yitro already has, just from the shot, a family relationship to the Israelites. All right. And wh- what is Yitro's job? He's a priest. He's a priest. He's a priest of Midian. We're going to get to what that means in a minute. All right. So he has a family relationship to Moshe, and he's heard about everything that happened. All those plagues, that water thing where they went through, right? Yitro's heard all of this. All right, so that, that Yudhei Vafei delivered Israel from Egypt. So Yitro, we keep getting a repetition of this word, right? Moshe's father-in-law. So just in case it's not clear, <laughs> right? So like when we read Ruth, right? And in the book of Ruth, it keeps saying Ruth, the Moabite who came back with Naomi, right? From Moab. Okay. So, so Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, took Tzipporah, Moshe's wife, after she had been sent home. When was she sent home? We don't know. <laughs> Trick question. We don't know. Is this the first of it here? This is the first we've heard that she got sent back. That she got sent home. Where's Midian. 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 She's from Midian, right? She's Yitro's daughter. He's the high priest of Midian. So this is the first we've heard that Zipporah got sent back. Why might she have been sent back? To keep her out of danger. danger. Very possible. So Yitro then is also for Moshe, because who has he got with Zipporah? The kids. So these are his grandchildren, but they're Moshe's children. So He's serving, so he's got a family relationship with Israel. We're going to see a little bit about the priestly relationship. But the other thing that he is, is he's a protector of the family. He protects Zipporah, Moshe's wife, and he protects the grandchildren. He protects Moses' children um, from danger. Right, Gershom. Right, all right, so interesting, a little side note here we get in the text. One of Moshe's children was named Gersham. Ger, a stranger, was I Sham. There. There. Where's there? Where were they? Moshe was Gersham? Where was Moshe raised? Where exactly there? In the palace, in the court. How was he a gear? Because he wasn't really an Egyptian. But he doesn't know that till when? 
<laughs> There's like dead silence. <laughs> ah, so if you read Torah, this story like I do, and Linda does, when does Moshe find out he's not an Egyptian? When he's at the burning bush and God says, I am the God of your fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you read the story the way we two do, and this is how I choose to read the story because I think it's way more powerful. Me too. Me, Linda too. <laughs> if you read it that way, Moshe learns in that moment that he is a descendant of Abraham, that he is Israelite. Okay? If that's true, how was he a ger? Sham. It means his whole experience of being in... E- in Egypt, he doesn't realize he's not really an Egyptian until his commissioning at age 80. You're going to name your kid, I was a stranger there? That's not been his experience in Egypt. Right? When he learns where he's really from, now does that color everything about his experience in Egypt? Sure. Yeah. But supposing his mother told him. Don't know. So another theory is that he knows all along that somehow he's told early that he's a Hebrew. He killed the overseer. He was psychologically pretty stringent. Ah, very interesting. So in killing the taskmaster, Moshe reads himself out of the normative power structure and dynamic of oppression in Egypt. Very interesting. So that from the get-go, when he becomes essentially a fugitive, he estranged himself from what didn't feel like he could buy into. Very nice. So existentially, he's a stranger because he doesn't relate to what's happening in Egypt. Mehmet? It's about being a dissident, becoming a dissident. Becoming a dissident. So, so, So that any dissident... You don't get to be a dissident with all of its risks and all of its attendant danger. You don't get there unless and until you, can, you cannot stand what's happening around. You can't fit in. You can't accept it. And you feel a stranger in your own homeland. But okay. the I here Moses or Gershon? Well, it's kind of weird to name the kid Ger Sham. Where was where was he a Ger? Is he a Ger in, in Egypt? I don't know. Right. We don't. Know how old he is, do we? we don't. But he's presumably. Where does Moshe meet Sipora? <laughs> At the well. Where's the well? In Midian. Ger Sham is not a stranger in Midian. So right, where would he be a stranger? He's not in Egypt. He's in Midian. Okay. It seems to be more based on Moshe's experience, right? I have been a stranger, right? He names him Gershom. That is to say, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. All right. Could Moshe mean he's a stranger in Midian? Definitely. Because now, once again, where is he living when he's living with Zipporah, presumably? With her father-in-law. He's living with the big kahuna. Again. And again is not 
at home. Exactly. He's still a gear. He was a gear in Egypt in some way, in the palace, and he's a gear now in the house of the high priest of Midian. Moshe's experience is one of dislocation, no matter where he goes. And even if it's Moses feeling about himself, in many cases, people never accept an outsider coming in. So, so and it's from both in and out. Right. And certainly in this time, certainly in this culture, in the ancient Near East, for sure your identity was completely tied up in who your people are, where you descend from. Still is. And they would he would have been considered an outsider. It still is. Mm-hmm. All right. So so having said that, I think to some extent the the old, the more I get to know Moshe, the longer I hang out with him, the more I really think this is Moshe's power. This is his gift. Is he's always an outsider. He's always seeing things from from a distance, from a an, a, an alien perspective. He's never kind of sucked in to the culture. He's not wearing a letter jacket, you know what I mean, and going to his locker and hanging out. Like, he's never just unconsciously participating in what's happening around him the way people who are native and 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 their thought is also native, right? He just, he never fits. He never fits. He's never part of the tribe. Do you think his stuttering would have Possibly the fact that he, you know, oh, he, he perceives himself as not speaking well. So he, he, he's uncomfortable communicating the guy who gives us the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah, right. The guy who speaks the entire book of Deuteronomy is a terrible speaker. Maurice, or, uh, I forgot who I was learning with. He said, really? And that was the first time I realized that Moshe self-identifies as a terrible speaker. We get nowhere an indication that it's true. Nowhere. Moshe says, I'm a terrible communicator, and that communicates the entire book of Deuteronomy. Right? So is he a terrible communicator, or does he just not trust himself? Jonna? But but he but clearly he feels he identifies as someone who does not communicate well. Jonna? Just what comes up to me is this concept of perception. So yes. Is, is how true is that? You know, I don't know. It's just this whole concept of like if you're feeling like you always have to fit in and you spend all that energy trying to do that, that's a lot of energy wasted. Versus if you just realize that you're there's no fitting in, then you can go and write, you know, do the wrong thing. So, so sometimes, so but we don't. I, I you took it one step past where I want to take it. I want to leave it at he's a gear. Okay. He feels like a stranger, no matter where he goes. And he's being raised at the center, the epicenter of power in each of these places, and he still feels like he's a stranger. Um, So I don't want to suggest he's spending a lot of energy to fit in. I don't know that. What I'm saying is he identifies himself as Gersham, Gershayiti, right? I, I was a stranger in a foreign land, maybe lots of times, in lots of places. And I think there's a way that this makes Moshe able to serve as the prophet, the leader who's going to need to criticize the people 
not buy into their understanding of what's normative? And who else is he going to criticize? The Pharaoh. Who else is Moshe going to criticize? God. Moshe's going to criticize God. You can't kill this people. What are they going to say about you in Egypt? If you kill this people in the desert, they're going to go see. Took them out there to kill them. What kind of a gut? Right? So he, he, he has to be able to stand outside of what's happening and the normative understandings of relationship and power dynamics to challenge it's an advantage. The king of kings. It's an advantage. But isn't that, in some measure, maybe tiny, maybe big, part of the Jewish experience? I, I think 100%. That's very, very astute, Sarah, as usual. Um, <laughs> that Moshe embodies, really, the experience of the Jewish people, right? <laughs> that they will forever be strangers in a strange land, right? Which is my lecture on Wednesday night is right, going to be talking about right, kind of that, that whole, the, the, the Jewish longing and the Jewish working to be not exceptional anymore, right? right? Like we're exceptional wherever we go. We're not part of the norm. You know, we're always the gear in some way until America, and 1948 in Israel. So one solution to Jewish exceptionalism from being the stranger has been Zionism. So a nationalism solution, okay? We can argue about whether or not that was a success. I don't think it has been a success because is Israel treated like all other nations? No. No. So did it end Jewish exceptionalism? No. No. Right? It's the Jew state. It does not get treated like all other nations. I, we don't need to go into you know, what that means, but, let's, but I think we can all agree on that. right? Israel's held to a different reality than other countries. Um, and so that didn't work. Where does it seem to be working pretty well, though? Here. America. America. Yeah. Really? Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, come to class on Wednesday night, and we'll have that conversation. But... But what I'm saying is that this has been the theme for thousands of years is it's Moshe's experience, is that we have remained the gear. We've remained the stranger. I had a conversation recently with a man, 90-year-old man, who said to me in our conversation, well, you're not Jewish. I said, yes, I am. And he said, is your mother Jewish? I said, no. Was your father Jewish? No. Then you're not really a Jew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I said, yes, I really am a Jew. But at that point, I felt like a gear. Right. Mm-hmm. And, well, and later, what does gear come to mean? What do the rabbis mean when they say gear? Outside the street. What do the rabbis mean? This, that's Torah. What do the rabbis mean when they say gear? No. Convert. Really? Oh. <laughs> there you go. The, the ger means convert wow. for the rabbis. Well, I told this man so, that it was a shanda to say that. So, well, what it is a shanda for him to say what he was implying. But the rabbis, so so in in making that move, what do the rabbis do? Well, what are we told thirty six times in the Torah? 
Love the stranger because you were slaves. You were strangers in Egypt. So you see the move? Yeah. The temptation is to treat the convert as other. What do the rabbis do? They use the word that we are told 36 times in Torah, you shall love the ger. You were gerim be'eretz mitraim. So don't you for one second try to otherize, right, somebody who has joined the community in, a, in any way. Like you can't, you're not allowed to do that. Yes, Mehmet. Is it about the, uh, um, the Egyptians or all other people who left along with the Hebrews out of Egypt? W- what is about them? So when the rabbis say Ger is, is the stranger is the um, Ger is the um, the converse, do they mean those people who left with the Hebrews out of? No, they mean well. Sometimes yes, they read not there, but they read back to Abraham and his whole household. What does it mean, his whole household? All the people he had converted, right? So to monotheism, to Yahwism. So they read it back into that. They, 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 they bl- <laughs> it's complicated. They blame a lot of the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude that went out with them from Egypt. They blame them for what happened in some not so pretty circumstances in the desert. It was that rabble. The riffraff. They partied. They partied. Right. The the riffraff encouraged Israel to sin in the desert. So it's a complicated relationship to that mixed multitude, but lots of us love to go back. Stephen Carr Rubin loves to go back there. <laughs> Rabbi Rubin goes back there all the time. Our founding, it says, was an era of Rav that left Egypt. It wasn't just the descendants of Abraham. We've always been a mixed bag, <laughs> a mixed a mixed group. Dana? Okay, so this this was the topic of Professor Hayes's talk. First of all, that is an anachronistic question. Why? Why is that anachronistic? Are they Jewish? There is no Jew. There's no Jews. Israelites. Very good question. <laughs> it's the right question. Okay. Did the um, ever convert? To convert to what? Whatever. So by there by is sub- no conversion. Right. So by subsequent Jewish law. So. Okay. You see where we're going to go. Okay. So he married out. Yes. Yeah, he intermarried. He not only did he marry out, he didn't marry someone who was unchurched. Right. That's right. He married a practicing Midianite religion person, whatever you call them. Whose father is the high priest of that religious tradition. It what? It cannot be a coincidence. I agree 100%. 100% I agree. Okay. As usual, we've gotten very far in half of our time together. Okay. So, and the other was named Eliezer, right? Meaning, Eliezer, the God of my father, was my help. Right? Eli, my God, Ezer was my help, which is why whenever you see me teach uh, about Eve, and she gets translated as a Adam's what? 
She's she. What is she to Adam in the in the text? What what do you always hear in English? Wife. No. Helper. Help meet. Right. Okay. So. Yes, that's true. She is Ezer Kenegdo. But what, what, is, what is Moshe's son's name? Eli Ezer. God was my help. So clearly, helper does not mean assistant person. If you're calling God helper, clearly help comes from someone who's stronger than you are and you need their help. You pray to God, right, for Ozer, for help. I pray, what was the song? I lift mine eyes to the hills from whence comes my Ozer. Okay, so. But Eliezer was not in Egypt. So he wasn't free. What? what? The right, th- this is all about Moshe. Right, okay. This is not right. about his kids. Okay. This is about Moshe. I was a stranger there, mm-hmm. and my God was my help. Right, that's what he named, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think Eliana's name is about her? <laughs> <laughs> what did I name my daughter? Eli Anna. My God answered. Did my God answer her? No, <laughs> it's all about me. Like what? Right? In naming that child, I'm naming my experience. So you're saying even back then, parents thought it was about that? Exactly. <laughs> I am staying in good Jewish tradition. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Maybe midnight tradition. Okay. So, uh, da, 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 da. he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh, right? So this is clearly Moshe's experience, and he's naming his children out of that experience. Yitro, we're back to Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, yeah. in case we forgot, <laughs> in case we were unclear till now, brought Moshe's son and wife to him in the wilderness, okay. where he was encamped at the mountain of God. All right, so Yitro is camped where? Which is where? Sinai. Yitro's at Sinai. How does he know where to go? How does Yitro know where to camp? That's interesting, Carol says. Thank God I said something interesting this morning. Okay. So, so, right, Google Maps. Have they been in touch? Like, how did he know they were coming? How did he know to bring the kids and Sipora? Like, so maybe they've been in touch. But it seems that, that Yitro knows where to go. He knows the mountain of God. Right? Possibly. For him, this is the mountain of his God. Okay. Could be. Could be. That for, he knows where to go because if you're going to go to the mountain of God, duh, it's that one. That's where we always go. Right? Okay. So, uh, he sent word to Moshe, I, your father-in-law, <laughs> Yitro, I'm coming to you with your wife and her two sons. But the sentence before says he brought Moses' son. Mm-hmm. So, so the the omniscient, what is it called? The omniscient narrator 
tells us that Yitro's coming with Moshe's two sons. What, what does Yitro say, though? I'm coming with my grandchildren. I'm coming with Tzipora's kids. Don't forget for a second, Mr. Busy, big shot, now leading a free people. Don't forget for a second whose kids those are. Perhaps the matrilineal, the whole matrilineal Jewish thing goes back to the young. So, okay, I'm not ready to go that far. I am ready to say possibly, possibly Yitro and Sipora are following a matrilineal practice. So maybe he doesn't mean anything cheeky at all. Maybe what he means is I'm bringing... I'm bringing Tsipora's yeah. heirs. I'm bringing Tsipora's sons, right? Because that's how they would have talked about it, that it would have been matrilineal. Remember when we talked about all of that from the ancient Near East with Rachel and, right? Remember? Mm-hmm. With Sarah and all that stuff? So possibly it is very, it was normative. What, not possibly, I want to separate that. Possibly it's putting it this way because we know it was normative for many of those traditions to have a matrilineal, matrilocal practice. And he's the high priest. And remember we talked about Sarah, if she's a priestess, if she's originally a priestess, she needs an heir to, in the religious tradition to carry on. Very possibly what Yitro was saying is these are Tsipora's sons, meaning they are the heir to the position of priest in Midian. And who are they not priests of, by the way? Who is? Aaron's sons. Just, you know, just saying. Just let that sink in. Right? Possibly... Aaron's chosen and his sons are chosen because he was never contaminated. He was never, he was always Israelite, always identified as Israelite. Moshe is always the Ger. The Ger cannot be the priest. The Ger can be the prophet because the prophet is always ticking the people off. The prophet had better be outside the culture, or how can you criticize materialism if you have a $7 million home here and three in in Barbados and a, a yacht? How can you be the prophet? You have to be outside and deeply critical of the people and what they consider normative, or you're not a prophet. You're not doing your job. You're supposed to push them, right? The priest better be very connected to how things are, and keeping that going. They uphold. Um, you know, well, Moses, Moses was out profiting. And away from home. The kids stayed with the mother and the grandfather. It reminds me of the story of, you know, my father-in-law, who, you know, looks at my, uh, my daughter and says, you know, who is that man with, with my grandchild? Um, you know, the... Basically, if they're going to be around for a long time, they somewhat take ownership. Exactly. It seems very much the case that Moshe is so busy working, mm-hmm. right? And Yitro's going to have something to say about that, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yitro's about to have something to say about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right.
expert. Eight. Moses then recounted. Wait, 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 wait. Sorry. Oh, oh. He so. Came to Okay. He sent word to Moshe. I, your father-in-law, Yitro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Moshe went out to meet his father-in-law, and what did he do? He bowed low and kissed him. What is Moshe doing here? Moshe is now the redeemer of this people. Paying tribute. He's showing obeisance. He's sucking it up. He's, he's, he's demonstrating that even though he now is the leader of this you know, group, that Yahweh has worked wonders and miracles on this people's behalf, Moshe is the prophet of Yahweh. Even so, Moshe is making it very clear who he gives the higher rank to, right? And he, we've done this before. He drops to his knees, would have put his forehead to the ground, Right and shown in front of everybody the status that Yitro has in his estimation. Also the guilt. <laughs> okay, talk about that. Why is he guilty? Because he hasn't paid attention to his wife and his two children. Okay, so maybe he feels like, you know, I've been working really hard. I haven't really been home much. Okay. So, um, and they do what you're supposed to do, which is you ask after each other's Shalom. Right? Mm-hmm. You ask after each other's, how's your shalom? Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is why we greet each other with shalom, right? We talked about this. It does not mean hello. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean hi or goodbye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Moses then recounted to his father-in-law everything that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian for Israel's sake all the hardships that had befallen them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Yitro rejoiced over all the kindness that the Lord had shown Israel when he delivered them from the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, Yitro said, who delivered you from Egyptians and from Pharaoh, uh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now that I know that the Lord... No, now? Now I know. Now I know know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Yes, by the result of their very schemes against the people. And Yitro, Moses' father-in-law, <laughs> brought a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to partake of the meal before God with Moses' father-in-law. Okay. So, first of all, we've heard that, that Yitro heard everything that happened. So what is this about Moshe recounting to his father-in-law everything that happened? Right? Possibly, this is what you do when you have a great story, you have a great tale. It's not about transmitting information. Yitro's already heard what happened. Everybody knows what happened in the region, right? Moshe's telling the story because that's what we do. We tell the story, right? So he tells the story. You can imagine everybody sitting around the fire, right? And, And it's this long, long, long story. And Yitro rejoices over everything yud heh vav had done for Israel and that yud heh vav has delivered them, right? And says, blessed be yud heh vav who has delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh, right? And ata, now, yadzati ki gadol Adonai mikol Elohim. And now I know that yud heh vav is greater than all other gods. This does not necessarily mean Yitro didn't know that before. 
it's possible he's saying, and now I know for sure, like I've always known, but now, hello, it could be, if we, if we buy the story that possibly Moshe learned this yud hey vav hey business from Yitro, possibly Yitro is saying, see, what did I tell you? yud hey vav hey is the most powerful deity there is. You were on the right side, right? And were delivered, see? So do we see Yitro as a, as a bridge between the two cultures? We're going to go there. So now I... And Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, does what? Yes. Moshe did not encounter yud hey vav until Midian. He, at the burning... <laughs> He, it's the burning bush where Moshe understands God as yud vav After he's been living with Yitro and Sipora. And do you remember that little incident in the desert where something comes after Gershom? You remember this? Yeah. Who's the one that takes a flint knife and cuts off his foreskin and saves his life? Sipora. Sipora mm. knows what to do. And it's the right thing to do. So, right? It's not some foreign idolatry. It works. Right? Okay. So, wait, what was I saying? So, so Yitro sacrifices to yud heh vav And who eats from that sacrifice? Aaron and Moshe. They are participating in a sacrificial ritual that Yitro is the one who knows how to do. Okay. Moshe and Aaron don't do it. They just kind of stand there. <laughs> Yitro's the professional. Yitro knows how to offer yud heh a sacrifice. And they eat. They do not understand it as something outside, you know, a, a ritual that is outside of their Israelite commitment to yud heh All right, I'm not trying to push it. Like... Maybe, maybe not, but I'm saying that there's evidence all over the place, right? That Yitro has a relationship to Yud Hey Vav Hey that Moshe and Aaron recognize as legit. Even if you want to say he converts in this moment to Yahwism, fine. He's still the technician. He's still the one who offers the sacrifice and they eat. So they see his role as priest as efficacious. His sacrifice is legit. Do you think that Yitro goes to bed at night and starts to think, you know, if I adopt this belief, I'm going to lose all my power to this guy who stutters? So, so that's one of the reasons I don't think he changed. What, what do you mean? I don't think he left anything. Because you're right. Why would he well, give up his... Give up his Right. His right. Bel- he's the high priest. Right. You're going to convert to Yahwism? Now remember, they had syncretistic worship. So just because you worship another god does not mean you have to give up the worship of your god. Right? Israel's the one that has to have monolatry. We don't know that Midianites were monolatrous. 
They can adopt Yahweh. They might be able to have several gods that they worship, yeah. right? Who were, okay. I saw that's Robert. That's an interesting. Um, it's an interesting analysis because that uh, helps explain also uh, Moses' behavior when he meets his father-in-law. And at first, you say, "Well, he's just showing respect." Okay, you can say that. Secondly, you can say, "Well." Uh, it, it, it's possible that you just want to re- not only be respectful for the relationship, but for the fact that he worships a different god, and that's okay too. But now, the point could well be that <laughs> that he realizes that actually he's even you know there's God and there's his father-in-law. That that he's. Bowing down to the high priest of the God he now has had a direct experience of. To his religious mentor. Very, very possible. Bert, did you want to say something? There's a a note here, this is the homage, that uh, it's actually to Lelohim that they make the the burnt offering. No. In 12. No. Mm. No. When maybe? Verse 12. <laughs> but he says, but he says, for now I know. Where, where, what does he say? Earlier he says, with an ayin. Now, Yadati ki gadol yud vav he mikoha Elohim. But the, the point they're making in the note here is that by saying that they were making the sacrifice to Elohim, which was a more general term for God, that that made Yitro more comfortable. It's a, rab- it's a rabbinic apology. It, that's, I believe that's I a rabbinic gloss, and it's an apology, because it says very clearly, mm-hmm. for now I know that yud heh vav mm-hmm. is greater than all the Elohim. There is no reason to believe he has any discomfort worshiping yud heh vav There's no textual evidence at all for that. If it said Elohim there, yeah, I, 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 could, I could get with that. But it doesn't. It says Yudhei Vavhe. <laughs> Linda. Hi. Is it possible? I mean, maybe this is something I'm making up. But is it it's okay. That, all right, Moshe is with the Midianites. What if he went to this group over here? Could he have had the same experience? And could another group over here be having the same experience? So maybe he wasn't the only one, or the Israelites weren't the only one who were in relationship with... Correct. There is a theory that there were many such groups, that there was even such a movement in Egypt, we know, right? Mm-hmm. Remember that whole business about the... the okay, the language center of my brain just shut down. The whole business with the monotheism in Egypt. Yes? Akhenaten. Right? Akhenaten. Then it gets wiped out. And then that Pharaoh, his image gets wiped out. By whom? Who do you think was so threatened by that? The priests of the other gods of Egypt. There was 100% a movement towards, if not I always want to say monogamy. If not monotheism, monolatry. 
So the, the worship of one God. It doesn't mean there aren't others, but a relationship and, and a worship of only one. And, and this is monolatry. It's not monotheism. The, Israel recognized Baal, right? We have a battle between the priests of Baal and our guy. What's his name? Who's, who comes to Seder? <laughs> People, help me! Yes, thank you. Challenges the priests of Baal, right? So it's not like they don't believe there's, there's another god. It's that Yudhe Vavhe will beat up Baal. Doesn't the use of the term Elohim? Yes, 100%. Always. 100%. Definitely. Definitely. Yes, Sarah. And then we have to go to my text. If we ordered somebody to support Moshe and help him to organize the Jewish people, etc., who better? than this experienced father-in-law mm-hmm. whom he respects and always refers to as his father-in-law. That's exactly right. So now, Bert, let's quickly read through 13 through 16 because okay. to go to Sarah's point. Next day, Moses sat as a magistrate among the people while the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. But when Moses' father-in-law saw how much he had to do for the people, he said... What is this thing that you're doing to the people? Why do you act alone while all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses replied to his father-in-law, It's because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes before me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make known the laws and teachings of God. Yeah, yeah, keep going. But Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing you are doing is not right. You will surely wear yourself out and the people as well. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You represent the people before God, and you bring the disputes before God, and enjoin upon them the laws and the te- teachings, and make known to them the way they are to go and the practices they are to follow. You shall seek out from among all the people capable men who fear God, trustworthy men who spurn ill-gotten gain. Set these over them as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Have them bring every major dispute to you, but let them decide every minor dispute themselves. Make it easier for yourself by letting them share the burden with you. (coughs) If you do this, and God so commands you, you'll be able to bear up and all of these people, too, will go home unweary. Okay, so to Sarah's point, so now what's Yitro? We have to add to our list now. What's he now? Management consultant. <laughs> Management consultant. <laughs> right? He's a counselor. To Moshe as administrator. And Moshe does it. Moshe does what Yitro says. So it's not just that Yitro says it, it becomes part of Israelite practice. So possibly ritual practice and for sure administrative and judicial functions are brought into Israelite practice by Yitro. All right. So all of this is going, I want you to know, is all built around the question, what does it mean to be Israelite? Clearly, 
even to be a major force and leader, you don't have to be Israelite. Right? Okay, so we're going to go to Professor Hayes, her sources put together by Rabbi Katz. All right, so the first page you have is exactly what we just read. Right? You've got the text as we have it in Exodus 18. That's the fir- whole first page that you have. Yeah? Oh, wait, wait. No. We drop down to um, 24. Right? He does what Yitro tells him to do. Okay, have we messed it up? Really? <laughs> have we messed up the packets? They were this way, so that they were clearly packets. No, it starts with imagining community. Yes, this one. We're on the first page. Okay. 24 is where bottom of your first page. Moshe does everything that Yitro told him to do. Yes? Then look at 27. For Professor Hayes, this is important. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Yitro returned to his own country in Hebrew vayelech lo la'artso but but Moshe what you don't have here is Moshe invited Yitro to stay and Yitro says no I'm not Israelite he goes to his land right so he fully participates he's family he participates in rituals with this family He's the guardian and protector of this family. He's the management consultant to the leader of this people. But it's not his people. He's a leader. He's a priest of his own people. It does not in any way affect his ability to completely hang out with the Israelites. Yeah? Yeah. To affect his relationship with his son-in-law, everything's groovy. He takes his daughter and grandson. He what? He takes his son, his grandsons, and daughter back. They stay with Moshe. So, so Dana, are they Israelite? Mehmet? Or the establishment didn't want them there. Or the establishment didn't want who where? Maybe, but I think Moshe would have had the ability to say, sorry, he's staying, guys. At this point, Moshe, obviously, later, has a few issues with these people. But right now, I think Moshe has the the power to say he stays. Um, Okay. Turn to your next page, which has this lovely colored picture that my friend Barry put in here. At the top, what you have is what Professor Hayes gave us. You'll have to trust her. The sources are here. You can check. Um, But looking at Torah, this is what we get. This family tree. Okay? Yitro is, we're not sure if another name for Yitro is Chovav or if Chovav is the son of Yitro. In in the text, we kind of get indications of both. We get Chovav, son of Yitro, but we also have Moshe's father-in-law, Chovav. 
So we're not sure, what, is it maybe a variant tradition? We don't know. But, but in any case, what we do know is Yitro is related to Chovav, and at one point Chovav is called the son of Yitro. And Chovav is the uh, ancestor of Hamat. Okay? This we do know from text that we're going to see. Hamat is the ancestor of the Rechavites and the folks that you see on the right. The Tyratites, the Shimatites, and the Sukkotites. Okay? All of them trace back to Yitro in our text, in our Bible. Okay? So this is not someone else's tradition. This is our own tradition. Okay? From the Rechavites comes Yehonadav, and from Yonadav comes Malchia. Okay? So just, just we're going to go now to some sources. All right. So look at Numbers, the next source, yeah? Numbers 10, verse 29. And Moses said to Chovav, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moshe's father-in-law. Oh, sorry, I messed it up before. It's, it's Reuel that Yitro is also called. Yeah. Right here, Moshe's father-in-law is called Reuel, not Yitro. So there's possibly a variant tradition. Possibly he has two names, right? People call me Amy. They also call me... No, I'm not going to go there. So, like, he might be called something else popularly. Don't know. With the L, maybe it's a Yahwist name or a Canaanite. You know, we, we don't know. The Midianite... But, but we know Chovav is the son of Moshe's father-in-law. That's what we get told in Numbers, right? Okay. We are setting out for the place of which Adonai said, I will give it to you. Come with us. So Moshe says, come with us, and we will do good to you, for Adonai has promised good to Israel. But he said to him, meaning uh, his, uh, Chovav says to Moshe, I will not go. I will depart to my own and I to my, and to my kindred. And he said, please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will serve as eyes for us. Meaning you know the way around here. We need you. Your experience, y'all live here. This is your stomping ground. We need your expertise. And if you go with us, whatever good Adonai will do to us, the same will be done to you. It is very clear, according to this text, hang with us. Whatever God is going to do for us, God will do for you. There is not a serious distinction between Israelite and Chovav and his kin. Come with us. Live with us. God will do for you what God does for us. It doesn't matter that they're not Israelite. All right, go to the next one. Two Chronicles. So now we're talking about the clans of scribes who lived at Yabetz. The Tyratites, the Shimitites, and the Sukkotites. These are the Kenites who came from Hamat, the father of the Rechabites. So all those three that we just named are Kenites who come from Hamat, who is also the father of the Rechabites, okay? I know it's, I know it's confusing. Don't worry about it. We're going to get some more text. But what, what the point is, is often Kenites are the same as Midianites. That they are the same. Same, same town, same... Same culture, same, same everything. Same everything. 
All right. Why would they have different names? So, but, well, originally, there was a Mushite clan and an Aranid clan. Family. <coughs> yeah. They become part of the confederation that is early Israel. Right. Right? And then they become ancestors. Mm-hmm. Right? But they were originally clans. Okay. So probably the Kenites and the Midianites, right, there were different clans that come into a confederation and have some kind of uh, bigger identity. Okay. Two kings. He, okay, wait. So what do we know? We know if Kenites are Midianites, and even if they're not, they're scribes. Mm. What do scribes do? What do they write? What kinds of texts? Generally, in, if we're talking about scribes in this kind of a culture, what the exactly right. They copy religious texts. So scribes in Israel are Kenite. They're not Israelite. They're identified as Kenites. But they are copying sacred texts in Israel. Okay. Two kings, he, meaning Yehu, went on from there and he met Yonadav's son of Rechav. Remember, Rechavites. Rechavites are descendants of Hamat, which are descendants of Chovab, which are descendants of Yitro. So Yonadav, the son of Rechav, so he's a Rechavite, coming toward him, he greets him, Yehu greets him and says, are you as wholehearted with me as I am with you? I am, says Yonadav. If so, says Yehu, give me your hand. He gives him his hand. Clearly, this is a, you know, a handshake that has pretty significant meaning, right? Um, He gave him his hand and Yehu helps him into the chariot. Come with me, he said, and see my zeal for Adonai. Then Yehu and Yonadav, son of Rechav, came into the temple of Baal. And they said to the worshipers of Baal, search and make sure that there are no worshipers of Adonai among you, but only worshipers of Baal. These are religious zealots. For yud heh vav heh. It keeps saying Adonai, but Adonai in the text is yud heh vav heh. So Yehu, the king, is going on a religious zealot's mission to make sure no Yahwists are worshiping Baal. And what if they are? What do you think is going to happen to them? Right? So the Rechavite here is an ally to the king as a religious zealot for yod heh And is going to go root out any Israelites, you know, any Yahwists that are worshiping Baal. Okay? Interesting. Blessed above all women, let's go to Judges, shall be Yael, the wife of Hever the Kenite. So here's our, ya- our Yael. Do you see the hammer in her hand? I love that he found this picture. Let's look at the hammer in her hand. Where's the tent peg, do you think? Maybe in that little cute purse she's got under her left hand? Right? So Yael, remember, she drives the tent peg through the head of Sisera. Oh, yeah, we never get to these parts, people. We never get to the good stuff here, right? So she has him in her tent, and she drives the tent peg through the temple. (laughs) Get it? (laughs) The temple of Sisera and kills him, right? Okay, she's married to a Kenite. So clearly, right, very close. These Kenites are very close to 
right? The, the center of what's happening with the Israelites. All right. Let's go to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. Huh? Because she's fighting on behalf, because Sisera's going to try to conquer Israel. So she's fighting um, on behalf of Israel. Okay. That's why everyone names their child Yael. Right? Because they hope that she'll grow up to do violence on behalf of (laughs) her belief. (laughs) Yeah, we know. Imagine the baby. Okay. Baby presents a little hammer. Right. Look at Nehemiah. Malchia, son of Rechav, right? So another Rechavite. Chief of the district of Beit HaKerem repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set up its doors, locks, and bars. When is this person helping to rebuild Jerusalem? When are Nehemiah and Ezra? This is part of my job to educate us. When are Nehemiah and Ezra around? The 300 BC. What, what, what period? First century. They are, they are coming after the destruction of the first temple. Nehemiah and Ezra are rebuilding the community when they're allowed to return. Remember, Cyrus allows them to return. Those who come back, Ezra and Nehemiah, are the ones who are building that community. Ezra is a priest and a scribe. Isn't Cyrus the same as Ashaveras? Aren't they the same person? Well, no. I, Cyrus the Great was... Mapitum. So, Ahasuerus... Ahasuerus is made up. Okay. It, that's a story. Do you want to try to convince me that they're writing about that guy? Okay. No, I... I <laughs> yeah, right? No, but what I'm saying is, there is no Ahasuerus. It's a, it's a tale. It's a made-up story. Correct. But Xerxes. That's what I've read. So, so people want to say, maybe this, it's a polemic, right? Some people want to say the book of Esther is a polemic against the people who stayed in Babylonia at this period. You think you're so safe in New York? It takes one Haman. It takes one vizier. It takes one Hitler. Mm-hmm. You Jews who think you're so hot in Germany, mm-hmm. takes one. Mm-hmm. So some people want to argue Esther is a polemic against the people who did not come with Nehemiah and Ezra. Mm-hmm. That I buy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they so the Rechabites are actually helping rebuild Jerusalem with the Israelites with Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to the last. Go to Jeremiah. Do the last two. We're not going to read the whole thing. Don't worry. You say Nehemiah. Huh? Nehemiah, not Nehemiah. 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 You can say it however you want, but it's Nehemiah. Jeremiah. In Hebrew, so. Um, and Yirmiyahu is this guy. We have to get used to the different pronunciations. That we right, because you're used to hearing the Latin. Yeah. Right. Okay, so the English from the Latin. All right, so look at Yirmiyahu, 35, right? Go down to the third paragraph. 
Then came the word of Adonai unto Yirmiyahu, saying, Thus says Adonai of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive, will you not receive instruction to obey my words, says Adonai? The words of Yonadav, the son of Rechav, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. Meaning, Rechav said to his kids, Don't drink wine. You're supposed to live in tents. You're supposed to do this. The paragraphs above you, tell you that they, they follow their father's wishes. For to this day they drink no wine, but obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding, I've spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not obeyed me. Meaning the Rechavites are way better at following instructions than you stupid Israelites. <laughs> right? Because the sons of Yonadab, the son of Rechav, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not obeyed me. This people meaning Israel. Israel, right? So go down, go down, go down to almost the last, verse 19. Therefore, thus says Adonai of hosts, the God of Israel, there will not be cut off a man of the descendants of Yonadab, the son of Rechav, standing before me forever. Y'all, on the other hand, y'all have a covenant that is conditional. Step out of line, and I'll kick you out of the land. Right? But the Rechavites will stand before me forever. Okay? Your next text, the Yalchut Shimoni, Rabbi Yonatan says... But do not resident aliens enter the sanctuary? So what's the sanctuary? The temple. temple. So what? Aliens? Gerim? Entering the temple? What? Rather, they had seats in the Sanhedrin. And they taught words of Torah. But others say their daughters married into the priesthood and their grandsons offered sacrifices on the altar. And how do we know that the sons of Yonadav, the son of Rechav, are descended from Yitro? As it says in Chronicles, these are the Kenites who came from Hamat, father of the house of Rechav. And if these who brought themselves near were brought even nearer by God than Israel, who do the will of God, how much more so? So they are seen as being in the Sanhedrin, and marrying into the priesthood. So they are serving as, their descendants are serving as priests in the temple. So Dana, what does it mean to be Israelite? Clearly it doesn't mean you're the only one with a relationship to Yudhei And Robert's saying, according to our own sacred text, it's better to be a Kenite. (laughs) So it seems if they're marrying into the priesthood, what does it mean to join the community? What what does that mean? Nothing. So it doesn't matter if your mother's not Jewish. First of all, <laughs> first of all, there is zero indicate we know from Torah. It had nothing to do with the mother. Right. Nothing. It all went by the father. If you're Israelite, it's because your father is Israelite. And it doesn't even really matter if your father isn't. 
Israelite. Well, so because that's my question. What does it mean to be Israelite? If if the Kenite descendants are serving as priests in the temple and there are scribes and they're religious zealots on behalf of Yehovah with the king, what what is the meaning of someone being Israelite? The whole, the whole right? The whole point of her shiur, the whole point of her class with us is stop thinking that the way we talk about belonging to the Jewish people is normative. Stop it, rabbis. We're all rabbis in the room. Stop it. She didn't say that. She's so beautiful and amazing. She would never say that. But like but the message was very clear. This was normative. You lived among the Jewish people. You lived among the Israelites. They were even marrying into the priesthood. They were sitting in the Sanhedrin. What? You become a member of the church. You, you're living among, and so we, we asked her at some point, um, when we got close enough to her to feel comfortable to ask, we asked her if she was Jewish. Yeah. And she's not Jewish. Uh, wow. She says, I choose to live in the shadow of the temple. This is her story. This is her story. I don't need to convert. I live among the Jewish people. I teach the Jewish texts. I am a scribe of the Jewish texts. A PhD in Talmud. I mean, I have chills. And um, like Yale, Harvard kind of. That kind of of degree. She's, I think, from, I want to say Harvard. But it's like, okay, so it was so powerful a message that what she was saying is what does it mean to be Israelite? What does it mean to be Jewish? Do I have to be Jewish to live among the Jewish people and participate in their you know, in their celebrations, if I'm invited to the Seder table, it's my story too. Mm -hmm. She relates to this story. She doesn't have another narrative. She was raised Christian. It's her story too. So she's not a practicing Christian. I'm not saying she's Christian. I'm saying she's always had a relationship to that story. So when she's at Pesach, it's her story too. She was part of the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude that has always lived among the Israelite people and have always served as counselors and have always served as mentors and have always served to make us better. Always. Yitro is the prime example of the non-Israelite who is responsible possibly for teaching Moshe and Aaron about sacrifice, about how to legislate differently so that you're not an overreaching leader and the people aren't worn out and exhausted. The perfect example of what it means to be a part of the family without being Israelite, without being Jewish. Can we reclaim a more a more open, fluid understanding of what it means to be family, of what it means to belong to each other, even if we're not the same, you know, part of the same people. Can we, can we get it that it's just as legitimate to live in the shadow of the temple, right, as a family member? And what does that do then to our conversation around intermarriage? around children of 
intermarriage? What does it do to our conversation about conversion? What it, like it changes the nature of the conversation in ways that are pretty profound based on our own normative texts. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.